turn to page nine in your notes. Page nine. Now, I said come on in everyone, but I really meant come on in everyone if you're supposed to be in here. It's a little bit sparse in here today for this hour, partly because it's Labor Day, so some people are gone. But also there's another class going on, and that's a class that I had sent an email around about this week that's follow-up to what I did two weeks ago. Two weeks ago in this hour, uh, I spent the entire time talking about some changes in our discipleship process. And we handed out at the end of that some response sheets, and many of you were here for that, and we had a very, very good response to that. But we also had people who were not here on that day. They were out of town, sick, whatever. So we had taken attendance on that day. We normally don't take attendance. Today we're not taking attendance with regard to names. But that day we did because we wanted to make sure we get that information to everyone. Uh, So I sent this email this week to those who were not here two weeks ago. For that information. And I said that today and next Sunday, Dr. Combs is teaching a session in our adult classroom too, right out those back doors, to go over the same information that I presented. So this means that if you were not here two weeks ago for my session, then you should be in Combs' class. All right, page nine. In our series, Positive Holiness, today and next week, are the final days for this class uh, because we are starting two weeks from today, two new series in this hour. Uh, one is Master Plan for Life. That goes, that's going to go for eight to nine months is how long that takes. And two weeks from now, you will receive a 290-page notebook for that class. It is 290 pages. But if you're in that class, in this room, starting in two weeks, you'll get that. We'll start at 11 o'clock, not 11.15, because the material takes an hour to, to go through. Uh, and if you've never taken Master Plan for Life, I certainly encourage you to, to take that. And then for those who have taken it, though, we'll have a second class. Dr. Combs will be going through the book of First Corinthians. And he can use all nine, eight to nine months to go through the 16 chapters of First Corinthians. So that will be a, an excellent class. But if you've never taken Master Plan, then you should be in here starting in in, uh, two weeks. So we have today and we have next week to finish up Positive Holiness. Uh, I failed to mention one other announcement. I'm sorry. For our Labor Day picnic tomorrow at noon, by the way, come for that. We would love to have you all. But we set up tents, four of them, on the south side of our property. Today, after we're done, any of you guys who can stick around a bit to help with that, then go to the south doors. You go out these doors and turn right and go all the way down. And that's where they're going to be set up. And uh, Jim Steppenbacher and Larry Castle uh, will lead you in how to do that. But if any of you guys can stick around, that would be very helpful. All right, Positive Holiness. And we have uh, had several weeks of that already. We've had four, actually. We had an introduction. We looked at the necessity of holiness. We looked at the courage of holiness uh, as well. Uh, And we've had three, I'm sorry. And now the fourth, page nine, the means of of holiness. And in the three sessions that we've had already, we have had some definitions that are very important to a series on positive holiness. First of all, what does positive holiness means? mean? It means that holiness in the Bible, contrary to what many people believe, is not first what you avoid. It's not first what you don't do. It is primarily first what you do. And then as a result of what it is you're trying to positively achieve, there are things that you can't do. There are things you need to avoid. That's the way holiness is presented in the Bible. 
that our pursuit is a positive pursuit. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your soul. Love your neighbor uh, as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets, said Jesus. So you look at all of the things you're not to do in just the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. You shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. Notice all the nots there. All the things you avoid. All the things you don't do. But they're all, Jesus is saying, because of what it is positively you're trying to do. That is, love the Lord your God supremely. Likewise, loving your neighbor means you shall not steal, lie, murder, commit adultery, covet, all of those things. So do you see that all the things you don't do are all because of what you're trying to do? That's why I call it positive holiness. And it's very important to me that... Folks understand that our pursuit of the Christian life, of a holy life, is not just a list of things you can't do. That's what many people think the Christian life is. You're just trying to be stay away, out, stay out of trouble. So don't go there. Don't hang out with those people. Don't smoke. Don't chew. Don't run around with people who do. That's the idea. Okay. So don't, don't, don't. And many people have that idea. Your religion won't let you do X, Y, and Z. That's what they think. Your religion won't let you. Think about that. But it's not that your religion won't let you. The truth is, I I can't think of, like, for our church, what kind of rules do we have that we don't let you do? You know, I don't know of what it is. What What we assume you're looking to do is please God. And as you please God, there's a bunch of stuff in the Bible that says you don't do. So we avoid we avoid those things. And that's what it means to be then holy. Holiness means separate, set apart. So positive holiness means we're being set apart because of what it is we are positively trying to achieve. And then the things we don't do just fall in line because of that positive objective. It's like if you're training... In sports, to win a championship, to win a trophy, you know, say you're a runner and you've got a meet coming up and you're training. Well, part of that training includes some stuff you won't do, right? You won't be going to McDonald's every day, if any day. So part of your rules would be don't go to McDonald's and eat Big Macs. But that's not an end in itself. It's not just, it's because you're trying to do this thing. It's because you're trying to achieve this thing. That's what we mean by positive holiness. Holiness means you're set apart. You're different. Now, why is holiness necessary? It's because there's something wrong with the world. The Bible says that over and over again. There's something wrong with the world. And the world we have defined, holiness we have defined, holiness is set apart different. The world is fallen values expressed in culture. Fallen values expressed in culture. And then culture is the expressed values of a given society at a given time. It expresses those values in things like media, in fashion, customs. So you've got a culture. We all live in a culture at a particular place in time. The way the culture expresses itself may be good in its media expressions, in its fashion expressions, in its customs. It may be good, but it may not be. It may be fallen. It may be sinful in the way it's being expressed. 
It may be good, meaning that there's such a thing as, here's another term, common grace. So if you've been with us, we talked about common grace. That even people who are not Christians can get it right sometimes. Even non-Christians get married still. And some of them marry people of the opposite sex still. Okay? Everything's changing. But, and the world, fallen values, can and does over time pervert anything. But even with something like marriage, the institution of marriage is still upheld by more people than not. That's common grace. That's the world living off of the borrowed capital of the biblical worldview. Sometimes I call it the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. So there are all of those foundational definitions that then help us get to page 9. The means of holiness and how this works starts to work out practically in your life as you live a positively holy life as a Christian. If you haven't been here for those previous sessions and heard that full explanation that I just went over quickly, all of our recordings are on our website, and I would encourage you to have these notes and then listen to those prior sessions. So page 9. The means of holiness. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now that's in quotes. That's Jesus' words from John chapter 17 and verse 17. John 17, 17. Jesus is praying to the Father the night before he is crucified. And he says, he prays for his followers. And he says, sanctify them by your truth, Lord, your word is truth. When he says sanctify them, it means make them holy, set them apart, make them different. But notice the means by which they're going to be made different, by the truth. Where do I find the truth? In your word. Your word is truth. So Jesus is saying my followers are going to be set apart, made holy, different from the world. How's that going to happen? It's going to happen because they're familiar with who you are and what your standards are. Where is that found? In your word. The more familiar then one is with the word, wherein God's character is revealed, exposed, then that person is going to see the difference between what God says about himself and what we're to be like and what's going on around us. And changes then of necessity will need to be made because of what the word says. All right, top of page nine. We have seen that the world of the creator has been distorted by the fall, the entrance of sin into God's good world. The world God made is now used and abused for ends that are contrary to his design. This misuse of God's world is called worldliness. The world in scripture, the Greek word translated with the English word world is cosmos, which refers to the arrangement that reflects the fallen values of sinful creatures. As such, the world takes what is good and perverts it to promote evil values. Worldliness, then, is not primarily what the world does, but what it believes and values. Now, what it believes and values affects what it does, of course. But it's not first that. You can't look at people who are non-Christians and go, they do this, therefore we can't. Because we're Christians and so we got to be different from you in every way. No, because there's this whole category of commonality, common grace. So you don't do that, but what you do have to do is, as you've heard me say in this series, exegete the culture. Analyze the culture. 
look at what the culture is expressing in its fashions, in its in media, in its customs, in its entertainment. Look at what it's expressing, and then you have to ask yourself, is that expressing fallen values or common grace, godly values? And you have to regularly do that. Likewise, next paragraph, holiness is not first what one does, but what one is. As Christians, we've come to believe and value that which is diametrically opposed to the world. Therefore, our difference is not always found in external things like dress, language, etc. Though, notice, that's an important parenthesis there, though sometimes it is. But it's primarily and first found in the God-centered agenda to which we've given our allegiance. Our commitment to God is expressed in all we do, and it may sometimes be imitated by the world. But although the world may sometimes look and act like us, it never does that for the same reasons. It simply lives off the borrowed capital of the biblical worldview. Therefore, in areas where the believer and unbeliever are the same, it's the unbeliever using our worldview. It should never involve the believer borrowing from the world. The believer is never supposed to be looking at the world and going, why is the Christian life got to be so hard, man? Why can't I have some fun like those people? But if we're honest, we do that. We pine away to try to find expressions of freedom so that we can be more like the world. The truth is, if the world were not blinded by sin, the world would be looking at us and saying, why can't I have what they have? But they don't want it because of the blindness, the blindness of sin. So what distinguishes third paragraph, the Christian way of life then, is not first something external, although again, the externals are not unimportant, but it's not first that. But first, it's something spiritual. The explanation in the second century letter to Diognetus of the uniqueness of the Christian life is so beautiful that it deserves to be quoted at length. Second century. So this is the one, you know, 150 AD. And this is someone, the author we don't know, anonymous. So nearly 2,000 years ago, somebody writes a letter to another guy named Diognetus explaining why Christians act like they do. And this is part of what he said. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For, no way do, for nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric lifestyle. While they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and they follow local customs and dress food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else, and they have children, but they do not expose their offspring. That is, they do not kill their infants like the pagans do. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. 
They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. Those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. Wow. Wouldn't you like to be part of a church that had a bunch of people who fit that description? That's living the Christian life in a hostile culture. And the letter to Diognetus then compares the relationship of the church to the world with that of the soul to the body. Page 10. In a word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. The soul is dispersed through all the members of the body and Christians throughout the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, but not of the body. Likewise, Christians dwell in the world, but are not of the world. The soul, which is invisible, is confined in the body, which is visible. In the same way, Christians are recognized as being in the world, yet their religion remains invisible. The flesh hates the soul and wages war against it, even though it has suffered no wrong, because it is hindered from indulging in its pleasures. So also the world hates the Christians, even though it has suffered no wrong, because they set themselves against its pleasures. The soul loves the flesh that hates it and its members, and Christians love those who hate them. The soul is enclosed in the body, but it holds the body together. And though Christians are detained in the world as if in a prison, they in fact hold the world together. The soul, which is immortal, lives in a mortal dwelling. Similarly, Christians live as strangers amidst perishable things while waiting for the imperishable in heaven. Such is the important position to which God has appointed them, to which God has appointed us. So, we're called to live different holy kinds of lives, separate from the world, different from the values that animate, the fallen values that animate the world. So now I want you to think about what some of those are. What are some of the fallen values that animate the world in our culture. Culture is the collective values of a given society at any time as expressed in entertainment, in fashion, media, customs. The world is a subset of that, the fallen values that are expressed in those things. So what are some of those dominant fallen values Expressed in our day in media, fashion, customs, and so on, and entertainment. So when you watched movies, when you watch TV, any fallen values expressed there? Yes, Phyllis. Okay. So Phyllis said sexual sex sex. The worship of sexual pleasure. I'm going to use the word sensuality. Would I be right that sensuality is a value of our culture? That's expressed a fallen value. Expressed in entertainment, in media, customs, fashion. So, uh, Julie says modesty and for the world, lack of, right? 
related to the sensuality. So now you remember I said it's important, that parenthesis on the previous page on page 9 about though it sometimes is, that being the expression of our attempt at being different, our attempt at being holy, sometimes that's expressed in external things like the way you dress. You see that of necessity if, and I saw a lot of nodding heads, I don't know if everybody's buying or not, but a lot of you are, that in our culture, one of the fallen values that is regularly expressed in media entertainment in fashion, in customs, is sensuality. And that's then going to affect us if we are not people who are alert to God's command to be holy, to be different, to be set apart. Because if we get our cues from those fallen values of sensuality, we will now find ourselves emulating that, right? The Bible has you know, a good bit to say about modesty. In the way we dress. So you can still dress, you know, if this means a whole bunch to you, you can still dress in style, okay? Don't wig out. You know, you don't have to be frumpy. You don't have to be Amish. You can still dress in style, but, but really, okay, cool, but how much does that really matter? But okay, you don't want to look stupid. You don't want to represent Jesus in a way that goes, Automatically, they look at you and go, ah, (laughs) those people. So there's no glory in going out of your way to look out of place. But you do have to go out of your way to be different if the fashions, if the entertainment is expressing a fallen value of sensuality. So then being set apart means there's stuff I'm not going to do because I'm trying to positively achieve this. I'm trying to emulate the character of God in my life to become like Jesus. So there's stuff I can't follow in the world. So it may, it will mean you will look different maybe than some of the, you know, kids at college. We've got some of our college students here. You may end up looking different than that. Good for you as a Christian. For our high school students who are having their own class right now, And then adults are just people who used to be high school and college students. You know, who are still trying to be high school and college students. I mean, really. You got adults and you're like, you know, give it up, man. It's over for you, okay? (laughs) Grow old gracefully. Because you're comfortable in who you are in Jesus. Uh, I will uphold my girl who's not here. She's not feeling well, Kimmy. But to me, she's just an absolute example of this. Of a beautiful woman who looks beautiful, who dresses modestly and beautiful. Ladies, if you want to know who to emulate, I say go with Kimmy. Okay. And thank God we have other women like that and men like that who understand that principle. So what I've got in the middle of page 10 is filling in cultural values. I started it out by putting wealth there. Is wealth a value, a worldly value in our culture? You know, I'm a fool that rushes in where angels fear to tread. But, you know, we partly, partly elected a president based upon our being enamored with wealth. Here's a guy who knows how to get it done, baby. 
I say partly, not completely. But we're really enamored with wealth. I mean, there used to be a show, The Lifestyles of the What? Yeah, really popular, right? We love getting tours of rich people's stuff. But, you know, rich people's stuff is whose stuff? It's God's stuff. And you know how long it's going to last? It's going to last their lifetime. We've been going through Ecclesiastes. Wealth is of fallen value. The desire for that. Um, Sensuality. Can you think of some others? Yeah, David. Yeah. Right. Right. So Dave is talking about a uh, you know our our cultures. I'm going to use the word tolerance for everything in the name of a distorted definition of love. That's distorting sexuality. Now, who gave sexuality? God. What does the world do? The world distorts. The world twists. We're living in a day where that's happening in a very dramatic way in terms of sexuality. So another cultural value would be tolerance. And as you read God's word, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. Read the word and see how tolerant God is for stuff that violates what he created. The answer is not at all. So we live in an ironic society. That means um, that can't we just all get along idea? That tolerates. And tolerance is a chief virtue in the world. Tolerate anything and everything. Ah, except. What's the exception to tolerance? Truth. You. Tolerate everybody except people who are perceived to be intolerant based upon your definition of what tolerance is. So someone over here said relativism. So that goes with that, doesn't it? As you might imagine, if there is no standard of truth, then everybody makes up their own. And if the society then agrees on conventions of truth, those who are on the outside are going to be condemned. So you're going to find yourself, our kids are going to find themselves increasingly on the outside looking in, in a culture that is relativistic and tolerance is a chief virtue. Good. Wes. Four, three, yeah, right, right. Okay, good. Yeah, so uh, I've got a section there for what passages would go with this. Thank you, Wes. So with regard to sensuality, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 says, It is God's will, I'm quoting, It is God's will that you be sanctified. What's sanctified mean? I already defined it for you. It's God's will that you be holy, that you be set apart. 
First Thessalonians 4.3, it is God's will that you be sanctified. Colon. In the NIV, there's a colon after that. So how am I sanctified? First thing it says is avoid sexual immorality. So we avoid, stay away from sexual immorality in all of its forms. If we're going to be holy, if we're going to be sanctified. And then Romans chapter 1 for this issue of tolerance versus truth. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 are about that. All right. What about this? What about celebrity? Celebrity as a fallen value. You see, leadership has morphed into, in many institutions, leadership has morphed into celebrity. Everybody that is leading something has got to be hip. Everybody that's leading something has got to be cool. Pastors have got to be cool. So, listen, you're going to have to go somewhere else. <laughs> Clearly, right? When you talk about, you talk about dull, you talk about a square, right? And I have zero desire, none, nada, to be cool. Because I never want to portray to you, I never want to portray to our young people, I don't want to portray to anybody, that the world sets the agenda for how I behave. One, two, I know that in leading things, often you're not going to be in the majority. In leading things, there are times where people are not going to like you. So I buck against the idea of trying to be liked. I'm okay to be liked. I don't want to be mean. But I'm not going out of my way to impress people with being cool. I don't want anybody to follow what we do because they like Ken. I want you to follow what we do because you think it's what Jesus says. But we live in a culture of celebrity. And friend, don't think that Christians are immune from this. There is a whole celebrity Christian culture out there. Celebrity preachers. Celebrity singers. We've got a whole cottage. We've got a whole industry of people who have made a business out of ministry. And they're celebrities. And if you put them side by side with what the world does, it's a Christian version of the same stuff. We market it the same way. We market preachers and singers the same way. So, you know, I know I'm not supposed to celebrity. It's not supposed to be about people. But if it can be about Christian people, we think that would be cool. And the truth is, it's just not supposed to be about people, period. It's not supposed to be about me, any of us. It's supposed to be about the Lord. And in the way we present ourselves, and the way we market ourselves, we should present it that way. I'm just going to tell you guys a secret here. My name doesn't appear on, like, anything we have around here. On purpose. Did you know that? Have you ever noticed my name is... Good. You haven't noticed my name's not there. My feelings are hurt a little bit, but still... Have you ever seen churches, you go by the sign that says, you know, such and such church, and then it's got the pastor's name on there? How many people have ever gone by a church and go, I'm going to go there because that dude's there? 
How many people would come in? So why do I care about that? I don't care about that in the least. And I think we should cultivate a mentality that says we don't care about celebrity. But the culture certainly does. What kind of passages would you have for that? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Corinth, I am of Paul. I am of Peter. I am of Apollos. He's my guy. He's my favorite TV preacher. They didn't have TV, of course. And Paul condemns all of that. All we are, says Paul. Who is Apollos? Who is Paul? But servants whom God is using, tools in his hand. That's all we are. So act that way. How about another one? Frivolity. Frivolity. You know, I I like to quip. I like to laugh. I love to laugh. At our home, it's full of laughter. We're laughing all the time. My daughters had a party over at our house Friday night. 17 young people at our house. We're out of town. We're at the pastor's wives' retreat. We're sitting around a fire Friday night. Julie Castle is sitting there with her phone. She gets the, an Instagram or a something else. And Julie goes, uh, hey, isn't that the roof of your house? There are people on it. There are people on the roof of my house. Now, lots of thoughts go through your head. Homicide. But we like to have fun. I like for the girls to have fun. And we knew they were having their friends over. And so I just texted, and I started the text with, um, U-M. I forgot to mention this before I left, but please don't go on the roof. <laughs> and I sent it to Laney and Annie, and they both get it. And they told me later, they laughed, and then they thought, wait a minute, he might be ticked. <laughs> My point is, we like to have fun, right? Uh, You know, a cheerful heart is good medicine, says Proverbs. But frivolity is something different. Frivolity is making light of sacred things. And I'm afraid, I know, our churches have bought in to the fallen value of frivolity. Make light of everything. Make light of sacred things in the way you go about it, in the way you worship, in the way you preach. Everything's a joke. Listen, friends, there's, there's a time to laugh, but there's a time to cry, says Ecclesiastes. There's a time for everything under heaven. So we don't buy into and don't emulate the value of frivolity. These are sacred things. All right, you guys, some of you had your hands up. Bob? Well, as soon as you said it, say something. I immediately thought in my line of work, self-esteem. Okay. Fallen value is us. 
We value us. You know, Isaiah chapter 53 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We all like sheep have gone astray. The King James says, we like sheep. We like sheep have gone astray. Kim and I went to her little nieces years ago. They were going to a Lutheran school. They did a little play and they were singing Isaiah 53. And there were these little sheep running around. And they were singing this. We like sheep. We like sheep. We like sheep. Because sheep is what we are. We like sheep. Because sheep is what we are. That is, our natural tendency is to like what we are. Our natural tendency is to like us. Our natural tendency is to be narcissistic. We live in a culture that is that. It's about us. So does that infiltrate your heart and your mind as a worldly expression that shows up in your life? Here's how you'll know when something goes wrong in your life. Do you think you deserve better? Let me give you a passage. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Luke 13, 1 through 5. On this issue of what's the fallen value? Us. What's the scrap passage? Luke 13, 1 through 5. This'll, this'll, and, and you could also write down 1 Corinthians 4 as well, 1 Corinthians 4. But Luke chapter 13, this will cure your putting yourself on a pedestal fairly quickly. Luke 13, verse 1. Some of them asked Jesus about the blood that Pilate had mixed with those who were offering sacrifice, those who were worshiping. They asked Jesus, what about those people who were killed while they were at the temple worshiping? Do you have a comment, Savior? Jesus wasn't, didn't weasel out of it. Jesus didn't say no comment. Here's what he said. Do you think that those people were worse sinners than you? Unless you repent, you too likewise will perish. That was his response. Oh, man. You see what the assumption was. These people died and people are not supposed to die. And Jesus' assumption is it's amazing anybody's alive. His is completely opposite. It's not, he's not amazed that people die. He's amazed that anybody's still alive. And it's only by the grace of God that any of us are still alive. So do you think they were worse? No, unless you too likewise. And then Jesus goes on to say, or what about that tower in Siloam that fell on those people and killed, I think it says 18 people. Do you think they were worse sinners than you? No, I tell you, unless you too repent, you will likewise perish. So, yeah, we got the fallen value that's about us. We're on the path. When something goes wrong, God, what are you doing? But if we had biblical values, we wouldn't be surprised when things go wrong. We'd be surprised that they go wrong so seldom. Why don't they go wrong more often in a fallen world? You know why? Because of the grace of God. All right. Those are good. Very good. Bottom of page 10. That's the idea then. That's what you got to do. 
You got to analyze the culture. You got to say, what's the culture communicating? What values is it communicating? What does the Bible say about this? And the more saturated you are with the Bible, the more you're going to see stuff wrong with what's being communicated. And it's going to grieve your heart. And you'll be like Paul in Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. Acts 17 and verse 16. And it says that he arrived in Athens, Greece. And it says there that his heart was convulsed. The the Greek word means a convulsion. His heart convulsed because he saw the city full of idols. But you see what happens with the world, guys and gals, is we get so used to it, we don't convulse. We party. We don't see the problem because we're not immersed in the world and therefore don't see the stark contrast between the two. The more you engage, the more you imbibe in an an uncritical, unthinking way, the more the water is fine. You got your toe in, next thing you know, you got your body in. And next thing you know, the, the church is worldly. And Christians are worldly. This, middle of page 10, is the kind of stuff we got to do regularly if we're going to engage in positive holiness. One last comment. Now, you engage in all this. And I engage in it. We're called to do that. Use the Bible, analyze the culture, and compare and contrast them. And you may come up with different answers than I come up with on what it is you're going to participate in and what you don't participate in. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with you having different answers than I am. What I'm not fine with is you or any of us not engaging in the process. And what I find with many Christians is they don't engage in the process at all. Because they don't understand how the Bible is written. The Bible is not written to give you a list of all the things you're to do and not to do. The Bible is written for you to take the principles and precepts that are given there and now apply them to the culture that you're called out to live in. So many Christians then take the approach that says, where does it say I can't do this? Where does it say don't go to R-rated movies? I'm just making that up. And their answer is no, no place. You're going to have to decide what you do with that. I'm not saying you should or you shouldn't. I'm saying you're going to have to decide what you do with that. I don't care if you come up with the same answer that I do. But I do care that you go through the process. And the Bible was not written to give you a full list of do's and don'ts. How do I know that? Galatians 5.21. Galatians 5.21. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And then it goes on and gives a list. And if you take the approach that says, where in the Bible does it say, then you would say, that's an exhaustive list. Those are the acts of the sinful nature. Those are the nine things I can't do. But then the list ends this way. It's got this whole list, and then it ends this way. And things like these. And stuff like that. You see, friends, that's the way your Bible's written. It's to give you the idea so that you can apply that idea, that flavor, that tone, things like that to your cultural setting. 
So we might not arrive, we won't arrive at the same answers. It's all good. We all must engage in asking the same questions. All right, we'll pick up there next week. Let's pray. Father, you're holy. You've called your people to be holy. Lord, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. The world, by definition, is unholy. And Lord, we still have the vestiges of the sin nature with us. We will have that until we die or Jesus returns. And so we still struggle to have worldliness resonate within us. It allures us, it draws us. Lord, you've given us the antidote. You've given us the answer to that, that we must be ever vigilant about knowing your truth and upholding the standard of your truth and applying that truth and its precepts and principles to what is being presented to us in the culture. So, Lord, help us to be faithful at doing that. Help us to not be lazy Christians. Help us to not be people that simply say, God didn't say somewhere, I can't do it, therefore it's all good. It's not all good. Much of it is not good because we live in a fallen world. And so we ask you, Lord, to grant us a heart desire to please you, to be like you, and therefore to be willing to do the work of analyzing the world in which we live and adjusting our choices and our lifestyles accordingly. Help us to do that this week. Go with us this week as we seek to be lights in darkness because we are different. We ask you to grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.